want to speak to you now from John's Gospel, chapter 4, verse 24. John, chapter 4, verse 24. The Lord Jesus Christ speaking to this woman whom he had met at the well uh, in the middle of a hot day in Samaria, a place that Jewish people normally did not visit. Um, Jesus was going north from Jerusalem in the south up back to Galilee in the north where he uh, grew up and ministered often um, and, and the direct route is through Samaria if you look at it on a map but normally the Jews would go round they take a roundabout route to avoid going through this part of the country which they regarded as inhabited by people who were not properly Jewish not fully Jewish and didn't really follow the Jewish religion and we see something of that in the conversation that Jesus had. But he went into Samaria, came to this town of Sychar, met this woman uh, who was there to draw water from the well, and they had the conversation that we heard read. And in the course of that, Jesus makes this statement in verse 24, God is spirit. God is spirit. And I just want us to spend a few moments thinking about that what that means <coughs> Jesus said it so it must be true and it must be important it must be something that's worth our giving a little time to to think about what does it mean what did Jesus mean when he said that what, what does it mean to say that God is spirit we'll think about that first of all and there are four things I want to say on that subject so we need to think about that and we need to think then what it means for us. What does it mean for us today? If Jesus said it, it's not just true. It's important for us, for our lives, for our spiritual condition, for eternity. So we need to think, secondly, about what it means for us. And I've got three things to say on that subject. So let's think, firstly, what Jesus meant. What did he mean when he said God is spirit? Four things. First of all, God is the original, uncreated spirit. He's the original, uncreated spirit. There are other spirits. God is not the only spirit. Angels are spirits. We have spirits. You and I, human beings, have spirits as well as bodies. We're not just bodies, are we? As many people think today, we have spirits. But angels and we are created. We're made. We're not uncreated. God, in contrast, is uncreated. Nobody made God. Nobody brought God into existence. You and I, we were brought into existence, weren't we? We were born. Angels were created. There was a time when angels did not exist. God made them. But nobody made God. There's never been a time when God did not exist. Maybe you've tried to think about that. I remember thinking about that when I was young, and it blows your mind, doesn't it? We can't, your mind can't cope with it, can't comprehend something that doesn't have a beginning. If you try to think about that, it's just impossible, isn't it? But, but uh, impossible for us to think about, impossible for us to comprehend, not impossible for it to be true, because it is true. It's true of God. God is uncreated. He has no, be no beginning. He owes his existence to nobody else. You and I, we owe our existence under God to our parents. 
God owes his existence to nobody. So there are other spirits, angels, we have spirits, but God is unique. There's nobody like him. He is the uncreated, original spirit. In the letter to the Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 9, he's called the father of spirits. In other words, he's the one who created all other spirits. So that's the first thing that Jesus uh, is saying when he says God is spirit. He's saying God is the original, uncreated spirit from whom all other spirits come. And then secondly, uh, when Jesus said God is spirit, he's telling us that God has no body. God has nothing material, physical about him at all. Do you remember the time when Jesus appeared to his disciples after the resurrection? It's in Luke chapter 24, verse 39. And and they were gathered in a room and they were confused and discouraged. And Jesus appears. He stands with them in the middle of the room. And in the conversation, he asks them for something to eat. And you know why he did that. He did that to prove that he, he was really risen, bodily risen from the dead. And what he said to them was a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have, he said. See, he wasn't just spirit. But he's he's telling us there what a spirit is. A spirit doesn't have flesh and bones. Spirit has nothing physical about it. God has no body. We must banish from our thoughts. When you think about God, banish from your thinking any idea that God has bodily parts like we do he has no limbs he's got no head face eyes inner organs nothing of that kind at all he is a spirit as jesus says now that's difficult isn't it difficult for us to really again get our minds around that and to think of god in that way because we don't really know what a spirit is it's so difficult for us to get a get a handle on it isn't it to understand it but it's clear from scripture from that verse in luke 24 and elsewhere that that a spirit has nothing physical, nothing material about it at all. That's what God is. God is spirit. So when the Bible speaks of God's hands, as it does, his fingers, his arm, his eyes, his heart, and so on, the Bible uses all those terms, doesn't it, about God. You don't have to look very far in the Bible to find it speaking about God in, in those ways. What's it doing? Well, it's simply using human terms, to tell us something true about God, but it's not speaking literally. We're not to think that God literally has a hand or an arm. We say Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. We're not to think that God literally has a hand. The Bible talks about God's eyes searching us or searching the earth. Well, we're not to think of God literally with eyes. What the Bible means when it uses that kind of language is that God's arm is his strength. It talks about his arm, it's talking about his strength, his power. Uh, It talks about God's fingers in Psalm 19. It's talking there about his skill in creation. When it talks about his hand, God's hand, it's talking about God's action. It's saying God is at work. Or his eyes. His eyes speak of his knowledge of what is happening, his knowledge of us. God's heart speaks of his plans and intentions and so on. So when you read those things in the Bible, then don't take them absolutely literally. 
think that God has those things, but understand that it's, it, the Bible's using those terms to speak to us in ways that we can understand. But God is a spirit. He doesn't actually have physical properties like that. And neither does he, strictly speaking, have feelings in the way that we do. Feelings belong to the body, don't they? When you love somebody, when you, when you hate something, it produces a feeling in you because you're physical, because you've got a body. It's not the, the feeling you have when you love somebody is not actually the essence of love, is it? Love is much more than just a feeling. You know, I know a lot of people think that love is just a feeling. And if you lose your feelings, they think you've lost your love. But hopefully you, you realise that's nonsense. Love is much deeper, love is much richer, love is much more solid than just a feeling. But we have feelings because we love others. And, and we have those feelings because we have, we have bodies, we have a physical part that produces those feelings. But God doesn't have a body, and so he doesn't have feelings in the way that, that we have. That doesn't mean he doesn't love, of course. It doesn't mean he doesn't show mercy or hate sin or, or pity us in our difficulties. But when we think of those terms, strictly speaking, in relation to God, we're talking about something much richer and much deeper than just feelings. When we talk, when we read about God's love, what we're, what we're saying, what the Bible's saying to us is, look, God has this settled determination within him, this absolute determination that he is going to do you good. That's what love is, particularly love for for his people, love for his church, love for those for whom Christ died, that that love indicates to us, and if you're a Christian, should give you great comfort and satisfaction in, in the knowledge that whatever happens, God is for you. He is for you. That's what Paul says in Romans 8, isn't it? He is for you. And all that happens to you is under his control, and ultimately, however horrible it may seem at the time, ultimately will work out for your good. It's not just about feelings. It's much deeper and richer than that. God is not. When we say that, strictly speaking, God doesn't have feelings, don't think that we're saying God is cold or like a stone. It's, it's quite the opposite. His love burns eternally and infinitely for his people, just as his righteousness results in a terrible eternal hatred and opposition to sin and a determination to condemn it and punish it. So... When Jesus says God is spirit, we're saying he is the original, uncreated spirit. We're saying he doesn't have a body like we do. And then thirdly, the Bible tells us God is invisible. And that clearly follows, doesn't it? If you don't have a body, if you don't have any physical parts, then, then you can't be perceived, you can't be seen by us. And the Bible says this very plainly, that God is invisible. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 speaks of the invisible God. It uses that expression. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17, Paul addresses God as the king of the ages, immortal, so it doesn't die, invisible, can't be seen. So God can't be perceived by human sense at all. He can't be seen, can't be touched, can't be tasted. You know, there's, there's no way in which we can physically perceive God. The Bible, John in chapter 1 verse 18 of his gospel says, no man has seen God at any time. He's invisible because he is a spirit. 
Now, it's true, isn't it? You've read your Bibles, I'm sure, all of you, and you see God appearing in the Bible, don't you, from time to time. In Eden, for example, God walks in Eden, and clearly uh, Adam is able to, to see him in some way. Or with Abraham, if you read Genesis 18 very carefully, you can see that those three men whom Abraham uh, met and, and, and gave uh, um, a meal to and so on, one of them was the Lord. Or Joshua, at the beginning of the book of Joshua, meets the commander of the Lord's army, and it's very clearly the Lord himself whom he has met. So what's happening there? You say, well, you know, you're telling us God is invisible, but clearly in those instances at least God is appearing to people and can be seen what's happening. Well, yes, God appears. He, he takes on in those cases a, a, a human appearance, a human form, not in the way that Jesus did when he was born, of course, as a, as a, as a baby, as a, as a true human being. But he takes a human form that can be seen. But in himself, he's invisible. Those, those are simply appearances of God. They're simply a form that God takes for those purposes, the Lord takes for those purposes to speak to and deal with those individuals at that particular time. But it's not how he truly is. God truly is invisible and cannot be seen. So he's the original, uncreated spirit. He has no bodily uh, parts, no body, and he is invisible. And then fourthly, and finally in, on this first uh, point, we need to say this, don't we? Jesus Christ, who is God become flesh, become human, Jesus Christ has revealed God to us. The rest of that verse from John chapter 1 that I mentioned a moment ago, John chapter 1 verse 18, says this, No one has seen God at any time, okay, he's invisible, but it goes on, The only begotten Son, Jesus Christ in other words, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. So Jesus Christ has come into the world to show us God. He reveals God to us in a way that he's not been revealed before. The Old Testament tells us about God, tells us who God is, tells us what he is like, tells us a great deal about him. But now Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has come into our world to show us God in his life, in, in the way that he lived, in, in the things that he did. He shows us God. He is God, uh, made flesh, become flesh, taken on a human nature for our sakes. He is the final revelation of God to us. You won't find anything more about God than you find in Jesus Christ. There's no point in looking to other religions to tell you more about God than what you can find in Jesus Christ. Other religions have a little bit of truth in them, certainly, but a great deal of falsehood. And they'll tell you nothing that you won't find in Jesus Christ. Philosophy, your own reason, experiences of any kind... None of these things will add to what you will find about God in Jesus Christ. In fact, they're likely to lead you astray and deceive you. So you want to know what God is like? Well, look at Jesus Christ. And look at him as you see him in the scriptures, in the Bible. Don't, don't think that what you need is a, a vision of Jesus or dreams about Jesus. People have those, I know, and... God can use those things to bring them to himself. I don't deny that. But if you want to know what God is like, well, read about Jesus Christ in his word, in the Gospels 
as he's prophesied in the Old Testament, as the apostles speak of him in their letters, particularly the Apostle Paul, but Peter and John and, and others as well. Read the scriptures to see what they say, what they teach you about Christ, because in Christ you see God, because Christ is God, made flesh. You look at Christ, you see his love. You read the Gospels, you see his love. You see the, his love for his concern for this woman. He wants to do her good. She comes to the well, he's got no reason to talk to her. It's quite contrary, in fact, to their culture for him, a man, a Jew, to speak to this woman uh, from Samaria. But he does. Why? Because he cares for her. He wants to do her good. That tells you something about God. Whoever you are, however low you may feel, however much you may feel that others take no notice of you or want nothing to do with you perhaps or can't help you in all your troubles that is not true of Christ Christ cares for you as he did for this woman and wants to do you good and that tells you something about God that tells you that God cares for you whatever others may think however you may feel others think about you it makes no difference God has care for you, wants to do you good if you will listen to him and respond to him. You see in the Gospels Christ's compassion for those who are in trouble and difficulties, those who are ill, those who are worried with anxiety, those who are weighed down with sin. Christ pities them. He has compassion on them. When, when he saw the crowds, he was exhausted. You know, one day, you know what it's like to be exhausted. You don't want to, well, if you're like me, you don't want to see anybody, do you, when you're exhausted? <laughs> You just want to go and be on your own and recover. And, and Christ was in that situation. He'd had a full day of ministry. He was exhausted. He'd taken his disciples off to be alone with them, to get away from the crowds. And, and then all of a sudden he sees these crowds, thousands of people coming towards him. And you know what the Bible says, how he responded to that. He didn't say, oh no, you know, we need to get away from these people. He said, it, it says he had compassion on them. He had compassion. He felt for them. He said they were like sheep without a shepherd. They had nobody to tell them where to go, nobody to, to provide for them. And he, he fed them uh, at that tremendous feeding of the 5,000. He has compassion. He's kind. You see how this woman comes? He could have just, as I say, ignored her or brushed her off, but he's kind. He speaks with her, wants to help her. You see that all the way through the Gospels. You, you, you want to know if God is kind Yes, he is. Again, you may feel yourself to be very down, lost perhaps, not sure which way to turn. Nobody seems to be helping you. God is kind. And if you will come to him, you will find that he is a kind God who will help you in a way that you can't imagine or, or, or get from anybody else. You see Christ's righteousness. You see him in the Gospels uh, angry, angry with those traders in the temple who wanted to turn the temple into a, a place to make money. He's angry with them because they're defiling the, the place of God's holiness. They're using what is for God and for people to come and to worship God and they're turning it into a way of making money and that makes him angry because he is righteous and holy. We see Jesus weeping over Jerusalem because of their hardness of heart and their refusal to trust in him and come to him. We see him weeping, don't we, at the tomb of his friend, Lazarus. He loved 
Lazarus, Lazarus was his friend. He loved Lazarus's sisters, Mary and Martha. They were his friends. And though he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead and he knew he was going to do that, nevertheless, as he saw his friends grieving and as he was faced with the death of his friend, he wept. He wept. Maybe you've been bereaved. Maybe you've lost somebody you love. Jesus knows. He has compassion with you. If you will come to him, he will provide comfort and help for you. And in all of this, we see Christ, see what Christ is. We're seeing what God is as we see him uh, in the scriptures. Who will we see in glory? If you're a believer, if you're a Christian, so trust many of you are, if not all of you, who will you see when you get to glory? We hope to see God, don't we? But we said God is invisible. So who will we see? Well, we will see Christ. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 says we shall see him as he is. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12, Paul says we shall see him face to face and know just as I also am known. We will see Christ who is God. And there's nothing, nothing kind of more about God than there is in Christ. When we see Christ, it's not as if there's some God behind Christ who is hiding from us. No, when we see Christ, we see God. Jesus himself said to his disciples, he who has seen me has seen the Father. There's nothing more about God than what we see in Christ. And in glory, we shall see God in his fullness in Christ. So God is a spirit. Without body, without parts or passions, as the old confessions put it, he's invisible. But he has revealed himself to us, finally, in the Lord Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God. Well, what does that all mean for us then, secondly? And three things I want us to think about uh, under this heading. What does this all mean for us today? Why is it important to know these things uh, that are so clearly taught in, in the Bible? Well, first of all, we need to understand this so that we understand ourselves. We need to know this about God, all the things we've been thinking about, so as to understand ourselves. You know, people today do not understand themselves, do they? I mean, we all have that difficulty, I'm sure. You think you, think you know yourself, and then you do something odd, or I do anyway, and, and you think, well, I really don't understand myself. You know, why did I do that? What makes me tick? But there's a much bigger misunderstanding today in society. If you, if you go to school, college, you'll, you'll come up against this, come up against this at work, the way people think about us. People think about themselves often just as bodies, nothing more. We said at the beginning, didn't we, we're spirits as well as body, but people don't tend to believe that. Think of ourselves just as bodies, just as chemicals, physical properties and if you press them people might say well really everything you feel everything you do it's just really the result of you know chemical reactions and electrical phenomena physical effects in your body and the elements that make up your body that's all that it really is some people say well if that's true it's very depressing isn't it very depressing if that's true if that's all we are because if that's all that you are there's no reason for you to do anything good 
Because what does good or evil mean if we're just a collection of chemicals and electrical impulses? You've got nothing to hope for, because hope makes no sense if you're just just physical, uh, a bundle of physical particles. Life has no meaning or significance. If that is all we are, just a, you're just a kind of chemistry experiment. But it's not. That is not all we are. And, and we know that. In fact, I think everybody really knows that. Everything, surely, as I was putting that to you, surely everything in you cries out and says, well, no, that can't be true. I have plans, you say to yourself. I have hopes. There are things I want to do. There are people I want to meet, things I want to see, things I hope to achieve in my life. I'm sure you, you, you think that way. You know there's good and evil, don't you? You know there are things that are good and things you ought to do. You don't always do them, but you know you ought to do them. There are things you know you should not do. And what does that mean? It means that you're more than just chemicals. Your spirit, as well as body, you really are. There is more to you, there is more to us than just our physical com- components. That is, that is the truth. We are made, the Bible tells us, we're made in the image of God. And what that means is not our physical uh, aspects look like God, not at all. No, our spirits, in our spirits, we have a resemblance to God. That resemblance is spoiled by the fall, by our sin, but nevertheless it still remains to some extent. We are made in the image of God. We have spirits, you have spirits. That's why you think some things are good and some things are evil, and you're right. Because you have this resemblance to God, who is the source of all good and opposes all evil. That's why you can be happy. That's why sometimes you're miserable. That's why you love some things and hate others that's why you can be very content and peaceful that's why you can be very agitated in your spirit because your spirit is real that's your experience that's why you can say i that's why you why you know you exist in distinction from other people you have a a sense that you are you because you have a spirit if you if you if we were just physical chemicals and so on you you wouldn't have that sense you're conscious of yourself because you are spirit as well as body, made in the image of God. So we need to understand this to help us understand ourselves, that we're spirits, in that sense, like God, although very different from him in in many senses, but in that sense, like him, we have a spirit as well as a body. But the second reason why we need to understand this and what it helps us understand, it helps us understand our sin. To see that we are spirits as God is spirit, helps us understand our sin. We see, you see, that sin, disobedience to God, begins within us, inside us, if you like, in our spirits. Sin is not just a matter of doing wrong things. We sometimes think that way, don't we? Stealing, telling lies, committing adultery. These are things we do with our bodies. They are sin, But if we understand what we're thinking about this morning, we see that these things begin within us. They don't start with our bodies. They start in our spirits. That's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 15, verse 19. He said, out of the heart come come evil thoughts. Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, 
false witness, lying in other words, and slander. Those are actions, aren't they, that he's described in that list. It's a list of things we do, but he says they come from your heart. And when he says heart, he doesn't mean the internal organ that pumps blood round your body, of course. He means your inner self. He means your spirit. That's where those evil actions come from, from within you. That's where the trouble begins. And God sees all that because God is spirit. See, it's your spirits that are wrong and God is a spirit and he sees our spirits. He looks within us. He sees us clearly exactly as we are, inwardly. Not just in what we do, but inwardly in our thoughts, in our plans, in our imaginations, in our desires. And that's not difficult for him. That's not a problem for him to do. We are laid bare before him in our most inward selves because he is a spirit and we are spirits. He sees us just as we are. That psalm we read at the beginning of the service, David says, you discern my thoughts from afar. It's not difficult for God to do that. He can see what you're thinking. He knows what you're thinking now. It's not, not a problem for him. David says, in that same psalm, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. How does he know that? He knows what you're going to say. How does he know that? Well, he knows the future. He knows everything that's going to happen. But it's more than that. David's saying he knows your spirit. He knows what's in you. And as Jesus says, it's from your heart that comes out the things that you say. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, the Bible says elsewhere. And God knows your heart, he knows your spirit, he knows what's within you, and he knows what you're going to say before you say it. He knows you, knows you through and through, because he is a spirit. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says, The living word of God, that is Christ, it penetrates to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Christ knows all that we are in every way to the very depths of our being. He knows us better than we know ourselves. Because he is spirit. He knows all that we are in our spirits, inwardly. Nothing is, is, is hidden. And that's where sin hides itself. That's where sin originates in us. That's why we are fallen creatures, because sin is right there in, 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 in the very depths of our being, and in our, in our spirits. And that's why in ourselves, in ourselves, we're unacceptable to God. That's why what we were talking about earlier, thinking about God, remembering God, makes us uncomfortable because we're conscious of our sin. And the more we understand that, the more terrible we understand sin is in God's sight, the more uncomfortable we feel. And that's why we need a saviour. We need a saviour who can truly wash us from our sin, can, can really take away all that sin from the very depths of our being, not just the outward actions, but from what's inside us, what's inwardly in our spirits needs to be cleansed from sin. And it's only the blood of Christ shed on the cross that can do that. It's only his death and faith in him that will cleanse you, that will wash you absolutely clean from all that sin that is yours. Uh, not just your actions, but inwardly. And that is why I say to you, and that's why the Bible says to you so very clearly, that you must trust in him, that you must come to Christ. 
and find that forgiveness for your sins. Find that washing from all the filth of our inward sins as well as our outward sinful actions. And, and it's true. If you come to him, that is what you will find. If you come to him in faith, if you put your trust in him, it's very countercultural. I know people uh, in our society today think this is, this is nonsense, uh, just dreams, just uh, something made up to make us feel better. Well, that, that's not true. That's not true at all. The Bible has taught this for thousands of years. Many millions of people have found it to be true across the world. Uh, and it is true. You come to Christ. You will find the forgiveness of all your sins. You will find you inwardly as well as outwardly cleansed from sin and forgiven and reconciled with God. So we need to understand this. We need to understand God is spirit so as to understand ourselves, understand our sin. And finally, in order to worship God. It's what Jesus says here, isn't it? Uh, in John chapter 4 verse 24 to this woman he says God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth so this is a there's a connection here between what we're thinking about and what we're doing this morning worshiping God our worship of God when we gather in this way when you come together on the Lord's day your worship of God is to be spiritual particularly in the new covenant as we are in in Christ since Christ came True worship, the true worship of God does not require beautiful architecture, beautiful clothing, choirs and all the rest of it. It's to be orderly. It's good to have somewhere reasonably comfortable and safe to meet. But true worship does not require beauty in those things. The essence of worship, true worship, is inward. It's spiritual. It's the state of your heart that matters as you come to worship that's not to say that the things we do and the things we say outwardly and how we do it is completely irrelevant of course not far from it but it begins in the heart the heart of true worship is is inward god is a spirit those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth we we thought of the fact that god is invisible and so the second commandment of the Ten Commandments forbids us to make any image of God. We're not to have any pictures or representations of God of any kind. They're a direct transgression of this command. And many Christians over the ages have taken that to mean that pictures of Jesus Christ are also forbidden because he is God and we're not to make any image of God. We're to take our ideas about God not from pictures or images but from God's word we're to worship him in spirit and in truth and it's the truth of God's word that informs our worship of God and tells us what he is like and so when we come to worship whether it's privately at home or in a gathering like this it's in our hearts and in our minds above all that we need to prepare uh, for worship we need to come don't we confessing our sin we don't confess our sin as we worship we're not really worshiping in truth are we we're not recognizing what we truly are in the sight of god and what he truly is in his holiness and righteousness we must come humbly focusing on god remembering that we're coming to him who is the creator of all things without beginning and end with all power all knowledge who rules all things we're coming to him we're not coming, first of all, to meet one another, though we do that, and that's nice and good. 
to encourage one another, help one another. We're coming first of all to God. And we need to remember that when we gather. And that's why it's good, isn't it, just before the meeting begins, just to be quiet, quietened down and just remember what we're doing, why we've gathered, uh, get our heads and our minds round that and in the right condition of humility and reverence before our holy God whom we've come to worship. We worship in spirit and truth because God is spirit and that's why formality in worship is so wrong. Formality means you're just doing things outwardly but inwardly you're not there. It doesn't correspond to what you are inwardly. So you sing and you might look as if you're singing with great gusto and you're singing it would seem with all your heart but actually you're thinking about something else. You're thinking about what you're going to do uh, later in the day or in the rest of the week or the football or something. You're not, your heart's not engaged. Your mind's not engaged. That's formal worship. It may look very lively, but actually it's formal worship because it's just outward. And we're not to do that. We're to worship in spirit, inwardly, from the heart. And truth, what we are outwardly, reflects what we are inwardly. When the Bible is read, we, we listen and we remember that this is God speaking. It's not just the person in the pulpit reading the Bible. It's God speaking to us. When, 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 the sermon, when you listen to the sermon, your, your mind is fully engaged. It's not elsewhere because it's the Lord Jesus Christ speaking through his word by his spirit. Formal worship does not engage the mind and the heart. That's the problem with it. And it's actually abominable to God. Christ condemns such worship. Worship is to be in spirit and in truth because God is spirit. So God is spirit. He's invisible. But God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, came to earth, took to himself a human nature, became man to show us who God is and what he is like, finally, and as fully as we can know him in our current condition. And Christ died that we might be washed from our sin inwardly, thoroughly, completely once and for all if your faith and trust is in him and we are to trust him you are to trust him i am to trust in christ and in his death at calvary for salvation for reconciliation with this god who is spirit who is so wonderful so kind compassionate loving yet hates sin with all of his being we're to trust in christ then to be saved from our sin and from death and from hell and we are to worship him